Sid, feel free to stand in the hallway. Um, first things first, uh, it's my bride's 30th birthday today, so I don't normally do this, but Heidi, welcome to the elderly. It's uh, awesome that she now is joining me there and, and uh, excited that we get to, to celebrate tonight. We're going uh, after this to Half Price Appetizers. Any fans? Yeah? Applebee's, so I'm sure we'll gorge and uh, be a sinful glutton. So excited about that. Um, when I was in high school, um, and I, I've shared briefly uh, things about this story, but there was a group of six of us, and uh, me and five others, and we played every sport together. I was a four-sport athlete in high school. Uh, really three, plus I tried to run track, but I wasn't fast. And um, I just really wanted to wear the short shorts. You know what I'm saying? Remember those old shorts and God forgive me for that. But uh, uh, this six of us, we, we made this pact. We uh, pretty much uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll we weren't going to partake in. Uh, we weren't going to drink. We weren't going to smoke. We weren't going to um, have premarital sex. And we made this pact as freshmen, you know, just ambitious, ready to take on life. And, and um, one by one, my, my friends started falling. They started getting in the party scene. And, and soon it became kind of the biggest um, running um, advantageous joke to get me to drink or to go to a party. And I pretty much adverted it uh, going to parties in general uh, my whole high school uh, career. And then uh, senior night of football um, season came and, and, you know, it's, it's, you know, just kind of that bonding camaraderie time. And so my friend said, hey, Mark, look, you've never been to a party with us and, uh, but it's senior night tonight. So tonight, tonight we're going camping. Uh, Now, if any of you are from a small town, okay, camping in high school terms, uh, are you guys with me? Like, it's not, it's, it's not like camping, okay? I don't know if, uh, and I'm not any, you guys like, actually like to go camping? I hate camping anyway, okay? And I'll, I'll describe it to you. I mean, I slept in my car that night. Um, but, but, but I went out there and, and um, I mean, they had told me, hey, we're going to be drinking and whatever. And, and you know, um, and I wasn't, but we went out there and, and, and there was like this kind of this four-step process. Um, we all got out there, all six of us, and we're all sitting on logs. And, of course, there's a fire. It's really cold that night. And, and they, they all start drinking. And, and the first process that I realized is, is, is it's pretty chill. You know what I mean? Um, everyone's just kind of starting to drink, and it's a pretty chill atmosphere. And then we kind of moved into this next phase. And the next phase was marked by a, a very honest conversation. Uh, we started talking about things that they don't normally, uh, religion, politics, pretty much everything that folks don't normally um, all of a sudden the conversation softened up a bit, if you will. I started hearing secrets that I had never known about, uh, these six. Um, and, and, and then we kind of moved into another phase. And phase three was um, apologies. Um, now, I was the only one who, who wasn't drinking. Maybe some of you have been in this setting before. But um, it, it turned into, like, they were all apologizing to me because they, at that point, were very, very drunk. And, um, again, some of you can relate to this. And, and this isn't the only time that this happened in this process. But... You know, you're kind of, you feel awkward because you're like, okay, like you don't even remember what you're going to say. And then the fourth process is they all pass out. Um, 4, 4 p.m., and I'll work with me here, or 4 a.m., rather, there was this little outhouse, and I had to use the restroom. I'll spare you the details, but I got, to the, I got to the outhouse, and I opened the door, and there, um, sitting on the toilet, was one of my passed-out friends in his own vomit. So I closed that door, and um, then I went over here back to the campsite, and two of my friends were you know, over logs and, and passed out completely. And I remember like just taking this whole scene in, you know, 4am, all five of my friends passed out and they, they had invited me to this. 
give me access, if you will, to their life. And I just thought to myself, like, why would anyone want this ever? Like, why would anyone want to participate in, in this nonsense? Like, if I would have indulged, it would have literally gained me nothing. Outside of the next day at school, they would have won some money because they got me to drink. You see what I'm saying? Now, now the interesting thing was, invitations, they give you access to people and invite you in to see their character. See what I'm saying? And in, in this particular moment for me, I was invited into the scene, and their character was made very clear. Uh, who they were as people were made very clear. And, and I struggled at times in my high school life, especially at thinking then that I was more holy than they were, and that they were less deserving of God's grace than I was. And that was a sin on my part. But you know this when you're invited into to people's lives, you're given a certain amount of access into who they are as people. Uh, one of the biggest things that Heidi and I love to do is we love to have people over to our home. When you invite people over to your home, you're giving them tremendous access into who you are. You see what I'm saying? Now, some of you like to have people over, others of you don't for various reasons. But when someone comes into my house, and that's why we have the MV at my house, I love to have people over, mostly so people can eat uh, Heidi's great desserts. But um, again, it's her birthday. I'm just, you know, you guys understand. And, um, uh, and, and I just, you give people like, this is where we live. We live here. Like, this is how we decorate, or Heidi decorates. And this is, you give people tremendous access into seeing what life is like. Listen, last week we, we started this conversation about the assumption that Peter makes in verse 4 of First uh, Peter chapter 2 when he says, um, as you come to him. He makes an assumption. He says, as you come to him, not if you do or if you may. He says, as you do. And guys, I, I literally have not stopped thinking about this assumption. And, and here's why. I fear, listen, I fear that in our culture... We have created a monster because we have not assumed that followers of Christ, like we, talk about, like we talked about last week, take advantage of the immediate access that we have through Jesus. In other words, last, last week we talked about that we are called a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood. That we are, through Christ now, who is the cornerstone of the church given immediate access to the throne of God. Right now, we can plead to God through Christ, given immediate access, something that the Old Testament prophets didn't have. Listen, what I fear, and this is what I've been, my mind and my heart are just overwhelmed tonight with this thought, is that we have created a monster because we, we don't assume that if you are a believer in Christ... Then, then that would, you would take advantage of that immediate access that you have. We, we have, in fact, changed our questioning to always pounding each other with, so how's your time in the Word going? Um, I'm struggling again. Yeah, me too. So how's your time in the Scriptures going? Yeah, I'm struggling. Me. You see, we haven't assumed that with believing in Christ, then you would just keep coming to Him. Verse 3 says, if you've tasted and seen that He's good. And then verse 4 starts with, as you come to Him. It's as if we've, we've, we've created this monster in the Christian world where we should start assuming that when you begin a relationship with Christ and you taste that initial grace 
And you receive the invitation from Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That we would actually be taking advantage of that. I fear that we're not. And I fear that the majority of our questions then are just beating each other up with the fact that we struggle getting in the word. And so the whole Christian world just runs circles around this question. How are you doing in your work time? How are you doing in your pursuit of Christ? I'm doing pretty horrible, actually. Yeah, me too. And that's just the same routine over and over and over. I went from Matthew to Revelation three days ago. Scanned the whole scriptures. And I see passages like, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I see passages like, the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. What I don't see, listen, what I don't see is the New Testament writers pleading that the believers would read God's word. I don't see it. I see New Testament writers assuming that because they believe in Christ, that the natural outpouring is that they would yearn to be in the presence of God, believing that they have instant access to the throne of God, and so then they can move on from that elementary awe of God into deeper things. We spend so much of our time as, listen, I feel like most of my ministry has been trying to get Christians to have an awe of God. And I'm just like thinking to myself, like, once you have tasted and seen that he's good, how could you not be in awe of God? And then I see Peter's assumption as you come to him, like there's another option. Like somehow you will just create some other option in your mind. No, 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 no. If we spend so much time as Christians just holding one another's hand and saying, hey, how's your work time going? Yeah, I'm struggling too. Man, I wish we could just get excited. We can never talk about the preciousness of the grace of Christ with those who don't believe. We spend all of our time just holding each other's hand on the carousel of Christianity, running the hamster wheel that we never get off of. I'm frustrated. Anyone else? Because I, like, I just look back in my conversations, even with us. Now, as the church gathers, one of the things that we do is we remember Jesus. We remember Christ and the cross and what he did. And in doing so, weekly, that's why the church gathers, weekly, we're remembering how awesome he is. That, that's why we gather here. But in our conversations outside of here, the conversation should be diving deeper. And in the end, we'll come back to that. But I, are you guys with me tonight? So we just started part one last week. And, and so tonight, we got, we got a long way to go um, in part two of this conversation of Jesus and, and I, as someone said last week, I thought that thing that you have was a book. It, just to confirm, it, it, can you guys confirm it's a rock? Yes. Okay, thank you, brother. Tell me your name. Excuse me? Uh, okay, never mind. <laughs> Tell me your name. Excuse me. Okay. This, this is, in fact, a rock. And, 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 and as you're, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to First Peter uh, chapter 2. And the page number's on your screen for those of you that need the Bibles in the pews. The concept that Peter introduced was that Jesus is a living stone. And, and then the next concept was, and, and you likewise are living stones built up on top of Christ into a dwelling for God. That you're a, a holy priesthood, a, a royal nation. And so tonight we're going to look at um, how Peter continues this argument by looking at three different Old Testament texts. Uh, so First Peter chapter 2, verse 6. You guys ready to go? Verse 6 says this, For it stands in Scripture. Now, 
Anytime you read the Word, one of the big things that I enjoy teaching is how to study the Word. Uh, if you read this Word for it stands in Scripture, for those of you that study God's Word often, you should notice this isn't a common phrase. Well, what's the connotations then? For, it, for as it stands in Scripture. And mostly when people quote Old Testament text, what do they say? As it is written, or for it is written. So that means here that Peter is going to summarize some Old Testament texts. That means he's going to take some Old Testament texts and he's going to share some deep thoughts to those things. He's going to quote pieces of them, but he's not going to quote them entirely. Are you guys with me? I'll show you what I mean here in a second. Uh, The middle of verse 6. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. (laughs) Uh, Now, first thing, um, maybe when you guys were kids, you sang these hymns that had the word Zion in it. Right, like, and, and you thought of Mount Zion, or maybe you've seen some uh, missionary Baptist Mount Zion church or whatever. Um, the first question I have is, what's Zion? Behold, I am laying a stone in Zion. Well, well what's, what's Zion? Uh, so first, let me, can I do a hand gesture here? Um, so here you have the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Okay, it's where the, the temple is still today. And then you have this little, this little dip in the, uh, in the geographical structure that's called the Kidron Valley. Now, the Kidron Valley is the valley that Jesus journeyed through during the triumphal entry. And he went up from the, anyone? The Mount of? Mount of Olives. That's right. From the Mount of Olives down the Kidron Valley up to the Temple Mount. Now, just to the west of the Mount of Olives is this place called Mount Zion. So it's at a little bit higher elevation. But I think, I think even though that's the, the very specific terminology of Zion, uh, generally through Scripture, Zion is seen as uh, Jerusalem. And even at times more generally, like the Jewish nation. But I think we can assume here that Peter means Jerusalem. Why? Because the text he's quoting, Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, is specifically targeting the Jewish leaders and their practice, their religion. So Peter starts out by quoting Isaiah 28, verse 16. Put it up just so we can read it real quick. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold... I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. So now you get the picture of what I already shared. It's not as it is written. He takes some of these thoughts and he summarizes and he puts them in. You didn't see Peter say so far uh, that you will not be in haste or you will not hurry. No, he doesn't say that. So God then in his work lays this stone in Zion or in Jerusalem, imagery-wise, leading to Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, where the Scripture says, as John writes, and behold, I see in Zion the Lamb. All right? So all of this imagery is leading to when the Lamb will come back in Zion. Behold, God's work. I am laying in Zion a stone. Uh, comma, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Now, um, last week we talked about the, the depth of the, the preciousness of what a cornerstone is, and I want to give you some more imagery. As I was studying it um, more, and because architecture is so, like, engaging, you know, as I was studying it more, what I learned is in ancient architecture, the cornerstone was so quintessential that they would actually make the cornerstone someplace else and then ship it to wherever the building was being built so that they could guarantee its perfection. Then when the cornerstone got to wherever it is that it was going to be built, then they would get it out so only minor modifications were to be made. But the deal about a cornerstone is it set, you remember I sounded, tried to sound smart last week, like the plumb line, right? You guys, okay, 
I saw, tried to, it didn't work two weeks in a row, um, is that it sets the, the perfect 90-degree angle in every way and also up and down. So if the cornerstone is off, then everything else is off. So the cornerstone is the most crucial part of the building. Peter quotes Isaiah and says, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Again, uh, the chosen, the piece is that Christ is the elect. And not just the elect, but the precious. And and you'll remember the Greek word, and this will be a key here in a second. Precious being um, costly. God saw his son as chosen. He was always the plan on the afterthought, and he was costly. Now, look at this next piece. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, this whoever believes in him, do you guys get what, what, what he's doing here? Listen, the question for you and I right now is, is, is do I believe in him? And, and let me tell you like how Peter has worked this process out. Now, for the, the Jewish context in which he's writing to, he's writing to leaders who think that by their practice, or listen, by their participation in religious activity, that, that, God then, that God then approves them. And so if you were to ask a Jewish leader in the day that rejected Christ, do you believe in God, how would they respond? Of course. I'm a pious Jew. I follow the law meticulously. I participate in worship. But what Peter's contention would be is the same contention he would say about you and I. Participation means nothing. Your participation by being here in this room and sitting in a seat means nothing. So he builds the premise on belief in Christ on what? You believe in Christ in this chosen and precious stone when you believe that he was the cornerstone that the whole church is built on to make an indwelling for God, that all life stems from this cornerstone. And unless you believe that Christ is this cornerstone, then you really don't believe in him at all. Those who believe that participation gains you the the approval of God haven't put Christ as the cornerstone, they have put themselves. Or they have put a pastor who's still acting as an Old Testament priest. Or they have put someone other relationship in that place. You believe in Christ when he is really the cornerstone, the quintessential piece of your entire life. That's what he says. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He's been building this whole argument so that he can get to say whoever believes in this Jesus... Not a Jesus portrayed by culture, not a Jesus mixed and matched with other gods, but this Christ, the chosen elect cornerstone. Now, the way, uh, the place that this fits in the last week is, is that you reveal that you don't believe that he's the cornerstone when in moments of burden, you don't turn to him. It gets really black and white really quick, doesn't it? As I ask you, do you believe in him? And then all the stresses and burdens in life come up. And then you turn to some temporal answer. Well, but, but yeah, I believe in him. I just, I just struggled. Okay. But why, then why has that become habitual? Then why do, at every turn of your burdens, are you looking to man to encourage you? 
instead of longing for more of what the cornerstone promises to provide. I sit as the foundational piece of your life. Now, guys, this is part of my struggle is when I think about how much time I've spent trying to get Christians to act like they care. And at times in my own heart, like trying to make myself act like I care. The question really comes down to, do we really believe? Do we really believe that he is really the cornerstone, chosen and precious? And that belief system, guys, all I'm trying to say is that belief system, it will just bleed through us. And what the world will see is they will see us constantly coming to Christ. They will see us saying, I have nowhere else to go. That's why Romans chapter 13 verse 14 has been such a crucial verse for me. Make no provision for the flesh. That's what it's talking about. I have nowhere else to go. Listen, when you get to that place in your life, when you get to that place where you feel like I got nowhere else to go, that's belief. You see what I'm saying? That's when your belief just comes out. Because it's at that, it's, it's at that point, it's at that moment in your life that true dependence is seen. And so he says, whoever believes in him will what? Will not be put to what? Shame. The, uh, the word here, uh, the Greek word better means dishonor. It, it also literally means, listen to this, um, it literally means to blush. Shame is one of the most dominant emotions in our psyche, in humanity. You know when you feel shame. A shame is that moment when you get found out. Shame is that moment when uh, you, you maybe even mistake guilt for getting found out. Shame is that moment when you've lied about a certain circle of things. Shame is that moment when, when people just start bantering you. Listen, shame is one of the most powerful weights that can ever sit on your shoulders. You know that, that like with your parents when you did something wrong and you were just waiting for them to find out. And then when you finally got found out, like the, the shame that came in the waiting and then that came after, it's so dominating. Listen, so when the promise is those who believe will not be put to shame. Do you, do you guys get that promise? Do you get that context? That's why scripture says there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. That's why if our, the majority of our time is spent trying to get each other excited. Most of us then are probably still living as if the cross did nothing. And if we're still living like the cross did nothing, then we will still battle with shame. And the world will look to us and say, so why would I want to be a part of that again? Because you say the cross, but then it appears like the cross has done nothing. Because you're still the shame-ridden, burdened people, not freed by the cross. Is this, guys, is this a little telltale for us tonight? I mean, I'm just... I'm trying to let my heart just come out because I'm frustrated because I, I look at my own life and, and I'm, I, I see ours together and I just keep asking myself and I, and I don't mean to say this to put a bunch of doubt in our mind, but I'm just, do we really believe that, that he is in fact this chosen precious cornerstone? Listen, or is he just some 
landscape decorative stone. Now, how many guys like doing landscaping at your house? Okay, okay. Um, there's some Risen Lord folks here, and we're glad you're here. Uh, whenever you guys do the landscaping project, what we've just said is don't call us, okay? Like three people raise their hand, you know what I mean? And those people have bird baths, um, which no one wins with. Um, you know, landscaping is interesting, and, and, and I, don't, I don't really get the decorative stone. Don't understand it, really, like why people use it. But do any of you guys have them? Okay, good. So, oh, one in here. So why do you do that, Okay. But, but you know what I'm saying? Like, like they make the thing like green and glossy and then they like put it on this birdbath looking thing and they like set it in there. It, 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 it like, to me, it serves no purpose. But for many of you, that's what Jesus has become. He's become a decorative landscaping stone. You turn to him in moments when it's good to, to say Jesus and to claim its beauty. Oh yes, look at, look at my Jesus. Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he nice? I live for him sometimes. But, 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 but it's just this nice decorative piece so that when others come over, you can take them over to the stone and say, look, look at this nice stone. Isn't it beautiful? I, I've had it here for a long time. I even come out and dust it off once in a while. He's either a cornerstone for you or he's some decorative piece that you use when it's convenient. One reveals belief. The other reveals shame and regret and remorse that is just heaping on top of you and not claiming victory to the cross of Christ. So I ask each of you, do you really believe? Or is it just some convenient gospel, some nice Jesus that seems pretty and you wear a t-shirt with the long flowing hair that at the end of the day is just made to make yourself feel better? You see, at that point, you've mistaken the purpose of the cornerstone. He sets the tone and the church is built on top of it so that we spend our entire existence glorifying that stone. No, he gives me life. No, I turn to him for everything because nothing else comes from anywhere but him. Now, verse seven says this. Um, So the honor is for you who believe. This is... This wording is, is tricky here, and I, and I want to read it how it reads in the NASB, a version of the scriptures, and, and closer as well in the NIV. Um, so the ESV says, so the honor is for you who believe, but the NASB says this, this precious value then is for you who believe. And the ESV is saying the same thing, it's just saying it in a, in a weirder way. Do you get it? God sees the elect chosen cornerstone as what? It's precious. And not only does God see the elect chosen cornerstone as precious, but who else does? His people. His people see the elect chosen cornerstone Christ as precious, as costly, as, as everything. So it's one thing for God to look down and the moment when Jesus is baptized and the dove comes down and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And it's another thing for the church to see the cornerstone as costly, as precious. Third grade Valentine's Day. Do you guys remember? Wasn't it awesome? Come on. Third grade Valentine's Day. Do you remember the Batman cards? Come on, dude. Come on, Mike. Yeah, dude. And, and th- third grade Valentine's Day is this, is this amazing moment because it's when you build the boxes. You guys know what I'm saying? And it's all about like the, the coolest box that you get, you know? And, and so there's this sense of like, 
you know, so you make your box and guys is all, you know, it's all sporty and the girls is like the absolute girliest things you could ever do. And, and then you write the cards and you get them and, and come on now, you know that it was awesome when you took this thing home and you're like reading through all these things. And then it progresses. It's like, how do we tell humans that they're precious to us or that they matter, or that they care, or that we care? Uh, then like girls want chocolate. I, I don't get that still, you know, my, my wife um, and maybe girl, do you guys want chocolate or not? You do. Why? Why is this? And these girls over here are speaking for all, you know, it's just like, I care about you. Eat some chocolate that I don't see the connection there, you know, and, and roses. And it, it's like, it's like we come up with all these weird ways in the human terminology to tell people that they're precious or that we care, or, you know. Uh, and, and then some of you like giving your wife flowers. And, you know, my wife is one, you know, who says they'll die. So don't. But, you know, I still do because you know, I know then she'll say, well, you didn't give me flowers this year. But you, t-, you know, anyway, you guys get it. <laughs> Happy birthday, hon. Um, so, so, so my question has been, as I've been thinking about all this and the ways that we tell one another how we're precious, that they're precious. How do we tell God that? Like if we believe he's precious and if we've come to this place where we're really, how do we tell him? How does that message ever get across? I really believe that you're precious. I really, have you ever thought about that? How do I properly portray to God that he is costly. He's more precious than anything ever. And I've prayed about this and I've searched the scriptures. And the only way I can answer that question is perfect obedience. And most of you in your quick theological thinking should be like, it's impossible. Yeah, yeah, that's why the cornerstone you see, perfect obedience is the way to tell God that he's precious. And the perfect cornerstone, the chosen precious cornerstone, perfectly obeyed like you could never. And, and that's why the church is built on this stone and not on you. Because this stone communicated to Father that he is precious because he perfectly obeyed even to death on a cross. You guys understand? And so that's why Christ is that living stone now acting as our high priest as we plead the throne of God. That somehow we as a chosen holy priesthood could go to God and be seen as favorable because of Christ perfectly obeying. So with that, should come some other reactions from us. And this is why I feel like it's at this moment where we just should need nothing else. It's at this moment where we should all just be like, and we're done, amen. And I long to live for you all the days of my life because of what you've done, because of how much you've loved. It's like when we get to those moments, then we don't have to try to give one another this awe of God because we can't do it anyway. So this beautiful piece of how we're to see 
that God and Christ are precious. But then he goes on. But for those who don't believe, and, and I'll just stop there for a moment. Look, I, I, think, I think for some of you here who don't believe in Jesus and for some of you who have friends who don't believe in Jesus, I hope you have friends who don't believe in Christ. I think you, maybe you've built up this, um, this mindset that, that Christians hate you because of your belief system. And I want to try to share something with you. When we get ready to read passages like we're about to read, for those who don't believe, I think the natural Christian reaction, and I don't understand it, is hatred. It is we go to our human emotion that just wants sides in everything. This is my side, this is their side, this is their, and this is my side. And in doing so, we just like build up these tremendous walls. And listen, for those of you in here that don't believe, can I share something with you? Our model is Christ. And unfortunately, because of our failings as Christians, we, we can't all the time portray that awesome model of who Jesus is. But, but his love permeates. And I hope even as we divulge into this text that, that you understand that this isn't, um, this isn't a hatred system. This is a reality system. There's some in here who don't believe in Jesus and there's others that do. And so let's see what he says about that. But for those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's quoting Psalm 118. What does this mean? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Who's the builders? This is the the Jewish leaders. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, those who rejected and killed Christ. What's the premise here? Do Do you guys, the stone that the believers rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the truth that we just started to breach last week. Okay? So many people, hundreds, thousands of people can point to the stone and say, nope, that's not it. And that's what happened. Hundreds and hundreds of years of waiting on the cornerstone. Christ comes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jewish leaders, they look at this stone and they say, no, it's not perfect. Like the, the, the angles don't match up. We're awaiting a militant leader that you aren't the guy. You're some servant, some, some pagan. No, no, like this isn't matching up. And so they reject him. But the question is, if man rejects truth, then what is true? If man rejects the stone, does the stone then become some soft pillow? If man says this isn't the cornerstone, then what happens to the stone? The image is God said he's the chosen, elect, precious cornerstone. So no matter what any Sadducee, any Pharisee, any Jewish leader says, it doesn't matter. He is the cornerstone. And listen... The reason why this is important for his readers, why? They're, they're dying. They're, are, their friends are being killed and persecuted because of Christ. Peter is trying to engage their hearts to understand, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised that right now, this thing that you so believe in, others aren't. Because uh, 30 years earlier, they put the cornerstone on the cross, not knowing what it was in their ignorance. You guys get that? I think some of you are so easily steered because Jesus is some decorative landscape stone. You're so easily steered at the words of man. Even that claim Christianity but morph Christ into something else. 
He either is the stone or he's not. And then in verse 8, he says, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So these people not just reject the cornerstone, but, but the stone becomes a stumbling block and a, uh, a rock of offense. Now, let me explain this, and this, this gets pretty graphic. In Old Testament terminology, um, a stumbling stone, well, we can all get that one, right? Like, Jesus then becomes the stone that, as people are walking along the road, that because they don't see him as precious, it's divisive. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus is divisive? I'm just quoting Jesus, okay? He says, I haven't come for peace, but I've come for division. Families will be set up against family members. And he goes on this whole litany in Luke to talk about some will believe and some will not. And so the rock of stumbling then is that Christ becomes a stumbling block. And for some of you in your conversations about Jesus, he's definitely been a stumbling block, right? Like, like some are some just... just as, as precious as you see Christ, others, he is, the, he is like their worst enemy. The problem is when Christians turn that into hatred and not compassion. The problem is when we watch the unbelief of others and that inside of us creates this, this hatred of their unbelief instead of the compassion for their heart that needs the grace of God like you did, you see? And so he adds this. And a rock of offense. Now, in Old Testament times, this phrasing was used to talk about people, literally, who tripped over a cliff and who hit their head against the cliff that it, that it killed them. So, putting the whole image together, they trip over a rock, like some of you klutzes do often, right? They, they trip over a rock and they fall over a cliff and they hit their head on a stone and it kills them. So the image is Jesus is either a living stone causing you to be a living stone through belief in him or because of unbelief it equals death. For those of you that don't believe in here what I don't want you to hear from me is words that would cause you to feel like those Christians, they're just, listen, the love of Christ, the grace of Jesus, as poorly as we betray it sometimes, is truly the most precious thing that you could ever even encounter. Why? Because it takes all shame away. And if there's those of you in here that don't know Jesus, you know what shame feels like. Because every day you live with it. Every day you're faced with your own regret and your shame. And even though you may not portray it, it reveals itself in pride in your life. And so all I'm saying is, as he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. No more shame. Now he, he finishes verse 8 here with an interesting phrase, shall we? Um, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now this brings out the crazies because, um, you know, many of you look at this word destined and you're, you know, this is, this is the debate word in your class and this is what you spend most of the majority of your Christian conversations focused around and I still don't understand why, but um, let me help explain what he's saying here. If his whole purpose 
is to make sure that his readers understand that, that there's no reason to be surprised. The better Greek rendering here is, is not that they're destined to disobey. The better Greek rendering is their doom is destined. In response to their disobedience, their doom is death. And, and has Christ in his sovereign plan allowed those to disobey? Of course. If he didn't allow, then all would be what? Then all would be saved. But all aren't saved. Some die who do not believe. Some die who do not think he's precious. And so their doom is destined in the sovereign plan of God and it equals eternal separation from Christ. At the end of this, the question for those who believe or those who perceive that they believe, do you really believe? (laughs) Is your life portraying your walk with Christ in such a way that all would say, for that person, Christ is everything to them. He's their precious cornerstone. Everything is built and God has become this indwelling. This person would be nothing without Jesus. Do people say that about you? Now, at the beginning of all this, I talked about how we've created this monster in the Christian church. And let me remind you what I said. The, the monster is, so Jamie, how you doing in your walk with Christ and how's your scripture time? It's going horrible. Yeah, me too. We've all said that at certain moments. What if, what if we killed that question? What if as believers, and I put that in quotation marks, what, what if that question was done with? What if we stopped asking one another, hey, so are you, are, are you reading at all? What if we started asking each other, so as you've gone to Christ, what are you learning? Listen, because he has put out an invitation. And when you receive that invitation, guess what? You're given access to what? His character. Just like I was given access to my friends and I saw their character revealed, you have been given through Christ immediate access to the character of God. You have the opportunity to see the character of God on display. We have it in his word through Christ. And now as believers, you have it in you as the Spirit. So what if we killed the question and all of a sudden we as believers started assuming that we had an awe of God, a thanksgiving for the initial grace of Christ, and we started asking instead, hey, as you've gone to Christ, what, what, what are you seeing about his character so I can be encouraged? What is, just, what is just coming out about Jesus? Do you see the shift in mentality? It's no longer heaping shame on one another because that's what the other question does. We anti-gospel one another by heaping shame on one another because we all feel bad because we can't do it. What if we just started assuming like we should that we can? That we really could be in awe of Christ consistently. That his grace really could grip our hearts. And so instead, all of our conversations were, so as you've gone to Christ, like he's your cornerstone, like just tell me, what of God's character has been revealed today? Well, today, today I've been reminded that his grace never stops. Today I've been reminded that I don't deserve my wife. Today, you see? And then each of us in our conversations walk away saying, 
the cornerstone that is precious. I want to kill the monster. I want to be a part of a movement that's portraying the gospel in a way that doesn't add shame to the end. Are you guys with me? So many of you tonight, you just got this. It's just, it's just burdening your shoulders. It's just weighing on all of your life. Something you did, something whatever. Listen, the promise of the cross is that it is enough. Why don't we start celebrating that as a church? I think that um, part of the, the blessing of the upper room was that Christ knew what was going to happen. <laughs> and so when he broke the bread, listen to this. When he broke the bread and when he served it to the boys, he rightfully and sovereignly could assume that they would live as living sacrifices and then die of sacrifices for the gospel. And this meal then, the acceptance of this meal, then, then becomes, I believe that Christ is cornerstone and that therefore my life can be a living sacrifice. It, it lives under that. And so Jesus broke the bread and he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. 3,000 years of history of the Passover coming to one fail swoop. And then he held the cup up and, um, you know, this whole meal, I, I wish that all of us could have been there. He held it up and foreseeing his death, foreseeing the fact that it would be a God-man on a cross and not a man bleeding, but a God-man, the Passover lamb dying, blood being shed. He raised it up and he said, this is the blood that represents the new covenant. And by the way, scripturally, Sinai represents the old covenant of grace and Zion represents the new covenant. This is the new covenant in grace. Take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. The rightful assumption was that those who take this meal, those who remember Christ in this way, believe that it's precious believe that the sacrifice really was costly. So tonight, church, I am um, burdened for all of us together because I, I feel like we're in a tough place right now. I feel like we're in a place where we'll, we'll either change because we've believe we're supposed to, you see? And that's been most of our lives. We just change practice because someone tells us to, whoever that is. Or right now, could we be affected in such a way by the power of God's grace that it would really change us? That God could really reach down in our heart where the Holy Spirit resides 
And he could say, shame no more. Believe, follow, and rest in the invitation. What Peter says is when you taste and see that he's good, you will keep coming to him. Let's pray together. God, I ask uh, tonight that for those of my friends in here that um, are just feeling very shameful and are feeling very burdened and they claim to be uh, followers of you, I pray, God, that you may need to reveal in their life that you have just become some landscape decorative stone, some piece on the mantle that they can point to. I pray, God, that right now in these moments as they reflect on their heart and um, repent, that, that you will cause a sincere repentance to overwhelm their souls. God, I pray specifically for those in this room right now who, who don't know you, who, who will be destined to doom because of their unbelief. I pray, God, that, that if there's those that are in here that, that are fit that category, that, that you would save them right now. That you would open their hearts, that you would cause a belief to be breathed into their life that they could see you as precious as well. God, I pray in all of us as a church community that we will continually accept the invitation to come to you and turn to nothing else. So church, this meal tonight is for those who believe in Christ, those who are followers, and we take communion here by intention, by pulling off a piece of the bread and dipping it in the cup. And I ask that right now you ask yourself this question. Will I come? Let's respond when you're ready.